0: Visual Intelligence Meets Real People. I'm your host, Athena Morse, and as always, we have the wonderful Steve Burroughs. And our guest today is Wendy Nystrom-Lloyd, the owner and host of Environmental Social Justice, an interview talk show that highlights and opens up realistic dialogue across complex landscapes of climate change and environmental sustainability. Sort of similar to what we do here on the Genuine Intelligence podcast, where we just trying to make these topics bite-size, easy to digest as well. So welcome, Wendy. Um, As always, we're going to throw some really interesting questions to ChatGPT. Um, So I'll let you introduce yourself, Wendy, and uh, yeah, then we'll we'll hand over the reins to Steve and get stuck in.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I'm very excited and a little scared as to what the questions are going to be. But um, yeah, I mean... (laughs) My background, I'm a geologist by degree, and I worked in environmental insurance for 20 years. And then um, I realized when I started the webcast, a woman actually approached me and said, please don't hate me, I still use paper towels. And I thought, (laughs) wow, we're doing a terrible job of communicating sustainability and climate change if someone's apologizing to me for using paper towels, because there's way worse things you can do. And I thought, I, I need to start talking to people and reaching out and just making it simple, speaking simply, directly, and just letting you know, you know, it's going to be OK. We got to figure it out, but it's things are going to be fine. And that's when I just started environmental social justice was um, born out of that, basically.
2: So so you came out of the insurance industry. And uh, yes. so how do those two things, how, how do you, you know, it's quite a it seems like quite a leap from one to the other. But is it, you know, just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I started off as an environmental consultant. I was in the field, um, basically pull, you know, sampling soils and groundwater and seeing how contaminated things were. And um, I was in Massachusetts, basically dealing with sleet, snow, rain, getting drenched every day. And I wanted an indoor job. I wanted to sit at a desk and be warm. And so I transitioned over to working for the state of Massachusetts underground storage tank program, which acted like insurance. It worked as a reimbursement program. So if your tank leaked and you were in the program and you saved your receipts, mind you, they did it in a very complicated way, but they saved their receipts. You could get reimbursed for Mm -hmm. your losses. And at this point in time, I really wanted to move to New York because, you know, it's what you do when you when you live on the East Coast. You got to live in New York. And I took a job with AIG and I was one of the first scientists they hired in their claims department. And it was all environmental loss, environmental claims, pollution liability. So when people think insurance and pollution environment, they're actually very closely related because general liability will not cover pollution. There is an exclusion in the post 80s. All of that was excluded when all of our environmental laws came into effect. So you need a specialty form written. And there are very few of us. Well, there are more now, but 20 years ago, there were very few of us that actually understood what that meant.
2: Right. So so. The, re- the reason what we're trying to do on the podcast today is, you know, our, our uh, listeners are people who are interested in owning their own homes. They either already own their own home or they want to own their own home. And one of the things you've got to do when you own your own home is to insure it. And so I wanted to start, I really wanted to try and understand um, in terms of helping people understand the sort of insurance landscape. I wanted to really try and say to ChatGPT, does climate change increase the risk to homeowners? And the answer was yes, uh, through a whole variety of events. So I wanted to start by, you know, given the fact that you're in these two fields where climate change meets insurance, you know, what do you you think about this?
1: Yes, I mean, so everyone seems to think insurance should be there to make you whole after a loss but people yeah. seem to forget that insurance the insurance carriers the insurance industry is is a for-profit industry. It's not a charitable organization. So they need to make a profit otherwise they go out of business. And with respect to our increased climate change, we are seeing, you know, increased climate is going everything's going to get warmer. That means we're going to have more uh, moisture in the in the atmosphere. Increasing storms, increasing floods, heat events, wildfires, it's all connected. And when you're trying to insure a home, you're going to have those increased risks and one of the ways um, that i often talk to people is you can also mitigate your risk i deal a lot with wildfire because i'm in california and a lot of that is non-combustible buildings having defensible space so no vegetation within five feet of your home just put in rocks put in you know desert landscaping whatever it is get the trees away from your house And then close your eaves. A lot of places will have like eaves on their roofs where the embers will just fly in and set your roof on fire. There's a lot that you can do. Um, Great organizations that can help you like after the Fire USA, they help people deal with prepping for wildfire or recovering from wildfire. And then there's several organizations with flood as well. I mean, storm surges and flooding and sea level rise. This all affects your ability to actually retain insurance. And especially in California, I think we've lost about Five or six carriers now that have left the marketplace.
2: But so so the, this is the question, right? You buy home insurance. So when you buy car insurance, right, the risk is related to your ability as a driver to drive a car. So the younger you are, the more you pay, because the statistics say that there's more accidents with younger people. And uh, mm-hmm. and I guess it's probably the same when you get older. Right? It probably goes up, you know, when you get older or something. But but it's related to the person. But with a home it's related to the to the to the property so yes. do insurers do, do insurers do, do are premiums going up for insurance yes. because of climate change and oh, yeah, uh, because what you're describing is some sort of mitigation factors and i've asked ChatGPT, what could i do to mitigate things but and, and i'll show that in a moment but but insurance premiums are going up and you're saying the carriers are leaving the market because they can't make a profit anymore in that market because the risks are so high. Is that what's happening?
1: Um, It's a little more complicated because um, with insurance, you have something called admitted or not admitted carriers. And when you're admitted, you're recognized by the state that you are in. It doesn't mean not admitted is bad. It's just, they generally deal with higher risk. But when you have an admitted carrier, the form is reviewed by the state insurance, uh, insurance commissioner, and the rates are reviewed by the insurance commissioner and they get approved or rejected. So insurance carriers are saying, hey, we need to raise our rates by X amount. And the state will come back and say, nope, that's too much money. We can't allow that. It's it's too expensive. And they'll have a little back and forth and try to come to a happy medium. But in the past 10 years or so, that happy medium hasn't been found. And they cannot get the rates that they want in order to maintain a, a level of profitability. And um that's why in certain states, like Florida and California, are getting hit the hardest because they cannot get those premiums or those rates. To actually offset the risk, and going back to mitigation, the way you reduce your risk is you mitigate the exposure. But um, when you say when you use the car analogy, with as an individual person in an individual car with their individual history, climate change is community. It's it's basically let's say community wide, statewide, county wide. It's not one person's home that's exposed. It's an entire area, and it has to be addressed as an entire area, not just that one house. So you also have to consider how everybody in that area, in that community in that county state is addressing their exposure.
2: Yeah, but 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 it sort of. Um, so here's something that really confuses me because all of these things that ChatGPT says people should do, and you raise some of them, but you know, um, assess your building, do you know, remove the fire risk from around your home, you know, buy sandbags and get ready for flooding. You know, all of these things are cost to the homeowner. But as I understand it, insurance companies will not reduce the premium. Uh, You still pay exactly the same premium whether you do these things or you don't because insurance risk is based on zip code and not on the actual risk of your house. So if I put a fireproof enclosure around this house and made it impossible for the building to catch fire, I would have to pay for all of that and I wouldn't save a dime on my property insurance. Is that correct?
1: It depends on your individual carrier it depends on your relationship with your with your um, carrier your broker i mean overall yes i could say that that's probably fairly accurate because again your individual home might be fireproofed or nothing's fireproof but you know you can mitigate it but that being said unless your entire zip code is doing the same thing if you have a wildfire racing through your community it's not going to spare your home. You might have less damage if you completely have non-combustible materials and you do everything right, but it's still going to go through the entire community. Um, some carriers will offer, pre, you know, a rate discount, but it's not going to. Always have to tell people, you know, when they say that yes, you can if you do these following steps, and you house harden your home, you can get a rate discount. That doesn't mean you're getting a discount from your previous year it usually means that instead of a 15% rate increase, you might get a 10. That would be the consider the discount. So again, you have to have a close relationship with your insurance carrier, with your insurance broker to find out what do I need to do? How can I do this? And there are several you know, several of us, I talked to many people in this, in this space where we're trying to um, figure out what the answers are. And a lot of discussions come up with captive insurance policies, parametric triggers. Parametrics mean, instead of determining what your loss was, or how much was your house worth? How much was your furniture worth? Basically, if you have a category one hurricane, you get X amount of dollars. Category two hurricane, you get Y amount of dollars. So it's a predetermined cost. We're right. trying to get wildfires categorized so that could actually trigger a parametric coverage as well. Long way off, long discussions. There's a lot of um, legal obstacles to overcome, but it is something that many, many people are discussing.
2: So. So my so my point here is that there is, if you were going to do all this work to your home, there's no payback through the insurance. You're saying you should have a great relationship with the, with your insurance carrier, but most people don't do that. Most people just simply go out and they try yeah. and buy insurance that's affordable for them, and um, and it, it, they don't really look at the specific risks. I mean, I asked ChatGPT, is as the climate is changing. You know, what risks should we insure for? And uh, and it says, you know, um, floods. And, you know, I don't know what flood insurance that people have got. Hurricanes, more, you know, stronger winds, earthquakes. I mean, in California, my understanding is most homeowners do not have earthquake insurance. It's very uncommon. And so, you know, these. You, this is the most expensive thing you're ever going to buy in your life. And yet you're not insured for certain things um so uh, you know just because you've got home insurance, it really mostly covers covers fire, I think that's the predominant insurance um and many of the other things are not covered and even even the coverage it's limited it's limited right so um in the in the event of the fires in Napa. Uh, construction costs went through the roof they doubled uh, because there was there were really no builders available once everything burnt down the builders have more work than they could handle so they put their prices up you know like uber you get surge pricing and uh and yet the insurance company will only pay out the value of the property on the market um to build and so there's a huge gap between what you get paid out and what it's actually going to cost you so is, is insurance like um Is it just like a layer and you take on, you know, you take on a whole bunch of more risk and people think they're safely covered, but they're not?
1: Um, You bring up very important points. So a lot of people, they are underinsured because they insure for the value of their home, not realizing that after fire tears through, costs are usually doubled, if not tripled. And that is due to shortages of contractors. Materials are, you know, spike. There's also a lot of people that come in after fire and claim their contract or take your money and leave. That is actually very common as well. Um, There's also the pollution cleanup after fire. So, you know, usually when things burn down, you have a lot of contaminants in the soils that also need to be dug up and and removed. That's a whole separate discussion. But um, the problem with the, with getting the right coverage, that's predetermined when you buy your policy. It's not, you know, an unknown number, your policy will tell you what your policy limits are, how much they will pay out for your total loss of property. You can have something called actual cash value or replacement cost. So actual cash value means, you know, I lost my my coffee mug. I bought it brand new for $10, but it's three years old. So it's now only valued at $5. That's the actual cash value. Replacement means I lost my mug. In order to buy a new mug, it's $15. So they'll give me $15. And so you have to make sure which one you have replacement or actual cash value, but also what your limits are. And that's the huge problem with California is a lot of people relying on the fair plan, which is a um, a semi quasi state organization, never really intended to cover wildfire. It was actually more for people as a last resort of insurance who couldn't get it in, in cities. It's now become the wildfire pool. It's actually now being referred to as a wildfire pool. And those limits the maximum you can buy is three million and it's pretty restricted coverage as well but if you think about it three million for a house seems like a lot of money to most people but for homes in california it's really not i mean the average house here is crazy expensive and then to rebuild it after a disaster it'll probably be even more than that
2: but let's just i mean athena you you just you bought a house right i don't know two years ago or something um, do you yeah, understand yeah. what's covered in your home insurance policy? Did you really review it and say, "Is it going to give me a five dollar mug or a fifteen dollar mug"? Do, do you, <laughs> do you, you know? Because I think I'm just picking, you know, on you as a sort of average person buying a house. Do you, did you really research what you're covered for in the event of something catastrophic happening? Nope,
0: and. <laughs> I actually had the insurance documents, um, the renewal uh, come through the other day and I was having a look through. And um, one of the one of the really interesting videos you you brought up um, on your. Well, I I found on your YouTube channel, Wendy, is talking about all this jargon and and all these complex words. um, And a half of it made absolutely no sense to me. But, um, yeah, it's it's not it's it's never it's never that clear but i think they they do that on purpose they make it quite complex for the average person to just understand because you know you, honestly i i it, it's bad isn't it but i wouldn't have really any idea what would happen if my house burnt down all i know is we have we have life insurance alongside that um but the building and contents insurance covers the building and content
1: <laughs> oh yeah Actually, i always look for words called pest. exclusions or endorsements <laughs> it's always so, good yeah, to read you
2: to so you don't know if they're going to value your sofa what it was worth when it burnt down or they value your sofa at what it costs to replace it with an equivalent and so i would just imagine it's difference. yeah
0: yeah it's it's today's cost of whatever it's um but i don't, I don't know i
2: it might be yeah. what it was worth when it when it burned down, which might be one third of what it costs today. So mm-hmm. so, what, you know, what you're saying is you're paying for insurance and you actually don't know what the coverage is until you're in that stressful situation of a mm-hmm. catastrophic event. And so all of the power is with the insurance company, right? Not with the individual, because none of us read our Apple contracts. None of us read our, you know, our <laughs> home insurance contracts. None of us read our car insurance contracts. Um, we rely upon the the company that sells them to us to tell us. What and
0: where do. I think most of this comes from is is the cost, isn't it? So, you know, if if climate change is causing more and more environmental impacts on areas like wildfires, um, for example, is it in the interest of the insurer to try and help fix some of those climate change? problems or the contributions towards climate change because I mean for certain certain areas I can imagine it's probably too expensive for somebody to move there because purely they cannot afford the insurance on their home because it's in an area that's classed as you know high category fire risk whatever it's um categorized as but it it Will it start pushing people away from those areas just because they can't afford it? And then you kind of think, well, if the insurance companies, I don't, I don't know, is it in their interest to to help with climate change?
2: Well, well, well that's a, I asked Chuck GPT the question. Yeah. I said, why aren't insurance companies influencing new materials in homes? But equally, you know, you were going into another area. Um, homes don't weigh very much and ships weigh a lot. So you could actually have homes that float, right? You could have the fa- you could have foundations that are buoyant, and in Florida, the home could lift itself up when it floods, and it could put itself back down after after the flood has gone. You know, I know that it's not as simple as that. You're connected to the utilities, but in principle, insurance companies could uh, encourage uh, builders to mitigate the risk. Why don't they?
1: Well, I mean, it's a matter of dictating to a contractor what they can and cannot do. Because, I mean, why would a contractor listen to, an, listen to an insurance carrier? And yes, insurance carriers would love it if people did more mitigation. But what can they actually involve themselves in? What can They can't really force someone to do something. I love the idea of the floating houses in Florida. And they're, um, the Maldives are doing that. Netherlands are doing that. A lot of countries are doing that, that are high flood risk, where they actually are. Kind of going up and down with tides or storm surges Mm. great idea we should start doing that um athena brought up the whole um people moving into other areas so yes that's happening before the insurance industry kind of got skittish about fire and flood about 10 years ago because cost of housing was so high people were moving to fire prone areas flood prone areas because it was a cheaper house they didn't have the insurance issue back then. Now they have that insurance issue because guess what? You're in a fire and flood prone area. So now you have, you know, the added stress of how do I get this insured? I moved out here because it's, you know, one, maybe you just didn't want to be in a city. You wanted to be in a more rural area, but now you're in a high wildfire area or maybe a, a few built yeah. on a floodplain. So it's extremely complicated to try to have like a one solution answer. It's actually multifaceted um, amongst Many no, I, I agree with that,
2: but but actually, you say you said why why would a builder listen to an insurance company? And I I don't think that's the that's the issue, honestly. I think it is the the problem we're trying to solve at Era is we're saying when you buy a house, you only know what it costs to create the house, what it costs to operate and maintain it, and that means insurance costs, replacement of things, uh, energy bills. It's that's all left to the homeowner. So mm-hmm. it's the customer who pays the insurance company and it's the customer who pays the builder ultimately. And, and so why aren't insurance companies working with customers to, and to change the marketplace to say, I don't want you to build me a house that will not be insurable in 10 years time. And, and we are, you know, the, 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 it seems to me that. Insurance companies have the power to influence the whole life cost of of buildings and to reduce the the cost to the customer. They have the ability to do that. They could they could choose materials that have lower fire risk. They could have homes that aren't susceptible they to are, flood risk and so on having... and so forth. Why why well, aren't definitely... they doing it?
1: Well, they're definitely having those those conversations of um, highly encouraging using fire resistant materials. Or, you know, I don't really under, I don't know a whole lot about floodplains, but there was a, there was a community in Florida where they completely, they were on their own microgrid. They completely burned up around it. They had their pylons three times deeper than they needed to be because they were worried about flooding. And all of it was above and beyond what the, what the contractor spec said, hurricane comes through, flooding comes through. They were the only community that survived. Simultaneously, the wildfires in um, Maui, one house survived because um, they put on a brand new metal roof and um they removed all the brush around them and all the trees and replaced it with rocks and stone to keep termites out not for fire it was actually a termite mitigation but they were the last house standing so there are these discussions happening it's just whether or not everyone's communicating together because uh, quite honestly is the homeowner talking to their broker talking to the insurance carrier talking to the contractor usually not bigger projects sure but individual homeowners, I'm not sure those conversations, they should absolutely happen, but I'm not sure well, they are.
2: I mean, one of the reasons for doing this podcast is we're trying to, through, through error. we're trying to educate customers that they can make choices that have a lower whole life cost. Because, you know, homes have become increasingly unaffordable. And so we're trying to look at affordability in terms of total cost. So, you know, most people are looking at affordability as the lowest first cost of creating a house. You see that all the time. You know, you can build a house for $50,000, right? You might not want to live in it, but you can build one for $50,000. Then there's a, in California, a house that you might live in costs $800,000. Doesn't mean it's any good, but it's basically, it's the it's the cost that people could just about afford. And you can spend anything above that. But once you've spent your $800,000, all of the costs afterwards are completely unknown and they're the responsibility of the homeowner. And we're trying to make those things absolutely clear at the beginning so you can make choices that don't mean you've got these big cost surprises later. And I'm just wondering why isn't the insurance industry taking that approach too?
1: I don't have a good answer for you on that one um why they're not taking the lead on on i mean i know a lot of carriers are discussing you know non-combustible materials and making things house-hardened things like that why it's not louder i don't know um i think personally i would love to see a little more collaboration amongst federal government local government and carriers to all work together because a lot of times when you're dealing with each state and each insurance commissioner, they have their own set of obligations that they want to do or their own priorities. Federal governments can, should actually have an over, you know an overall opinion of how things should work. And then with the larger insurance carriers, I know they want to do the right thing. I don't think I don't think they're intentionally trying to do anything bad. It's just hard. It's hard to work with each individual state to keep rates down to keep yourself profitable. Um, And that's a whole nother discussion of what is quote unquote profitable or not. Um, There's a lot that needs to be done. It's, and um, there are a lot of people working on it. I mean,
2: I agree. It's hard. I, what I would say though, is that if I was an insurance company, I mean, God forbid, but if I was an insurance company, uh, I would want, (laughs) I would want, I would want there to be very few claims. I would want to take in premiums and pay out, a very small amount of money. So effectively, yes. I, I see myself as a sort of casino, <laughs> right? It's the same idea. You know, everybody pays, I pay out very little, um, and and so in order to pay out very little, I need to reduce risk, and exactly. there are ways in which I can do that. And then and then I'm the dominant player in the market, right? I I, I go, you know, uh, come to me because. Uh, I will reduce the risk to you. Now, neither the homeowner, the person who pays the premium. I mean, Athena doesn't pay home insurance hoping she has a fire and the insurance company will pay out. She does it in the case of she hopes it will never happen. So she's going to pay yeah. every single year hoping that she never gets anything back. So, I mean, that's a bit of a weird concept, right? But that's, that's pretty well what, what she's doing. Oh. Why don't the insurance companies go along with that and say, yeah, we want lots of customers that pay out every year and get nothing back. Everybody's happy.
1: Well, you just described loss ratio. So lots of premium in, (laughs) no claims out. So um, low loss loss ratios. And that's what they strive to do. And a lot of carriers are um, measured by their loss ratios. But the the fact is, yes, they want to bring in premium. No, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to have a larger amount of claims because that will put them out of business ultimately. They are working towards, you know, it would be great if they met with contractors who were building a whole bunch of houses and said, hey, we will work with you if you do non-combustible materials, you do everything right, the mitigation tactics, the flood mitigation tactics, and we will offer you insurance. But you have to have an open market, meaning, you know, carrier A may say, I will work with this contractor, we will do everything right, and I'll make sure that you get a, a reasonable rate to cover your insurance costs. Insurance carrier B might come in and say, I'll do it cheaper. Just give me the business. Just give me the business. And that's when you get hard and soft markets, because once things are mitigated, you're going to get a whole bunch of people coming in, a whole bunch of people saying they can do it better, they can do it cheaper, they can do it faster. And then all the losses come in. And then those, you know, those carrier B guys say, oh, we're out. We can't do this. It's not profitable anymore. And then that's when everything skyrockets and you get back into the hard market. And it's cyclical. I mean, you you can see the history of these things it would be nice again more collaboration across carriers to work together but that's not the that when i was in the industry that was not how it was run it was you know you were in competition with each other
2: so okay that so that was good I, I mean i think that was i think that was helpful for me right i think we all understand maybe we should all read our insurance policies a bit better maybe there are things that we can do that are relatively low cost that reduce the risk knowing that we're not going to get paid out everything that we need to put our home back the way it was. You know that's that's likely that that we're not going to be able to uh, get all the money back because the contractors are going to charge more and maybe we only get um, uh, the value of of something at the time it was lost rather than the replacement value. Um, so read your insurance policies and take some have a good think about things you can do around your home to make it a bit safer. But let's move on to the sort of like uh, Wendy Nystrom's career number two, or maybe it's career number one, Revisited, and this idea of uh, environmental social justice. And um, I asked ChatGPT, is there a link between climate risk and sustainability? And you can see the answers there. I mean, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? You know, because I feel that sustainability has a huge economic factor to it. That, that it's not equitable and the people that, who are going to be most impacted by it are poorer. So, just yep. give me some thoughts on that because that's definitely something that I know you're passionate about.
1: Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So, when I left the insurance industry and I, I studied sustainability, I went back to school. I wanted to learn from the ground up, I didn't want other people's opinions. I, I wanted to actually learn from a school. I went to UCLA. And right. um, the first thing that hit me was social justice and the inequities out there. And um, that kind of hit me hard because I realized that, yes, people who live in poor neighborhoods live in the shadow of the power plant that is belching smoke and pollutants all over them. And that's not right. Also, lack of, you know, lack of access to education or libraries. That's a factor as well. And most people, when they do think about sustainability, they think the environment, they think climate change. That's one third of it. It's really, you know, you have to talk about the governance. You have to talk about until we get Wall Street on board, until we get the federal government on board, we're not gonna make it. And then you have to talk about the people. And the people are the most important factor, in my opinion, because things right now are very skewed to be inequitable. And we really do need to level that playing field. So most of the people I do talk to, and I've talked, as I said, from everyone from NASDAQ to startups and entrepreneurs, but I talk to people in the LGBTQ environment. I talk to people who are um, black and brown entrepreneurs and startups, because these are the people that need the attention they need to a platform to talk about what they're working on. And especially with respect to like venture capitalist funds, um, women get, I think 3% of all VC funds and people of color get less than 0.5. So 98, 99% of the venture capitalist funding out there is going to a certain demographic and we've seen some of the bad things that happen. With with those VC funds and those companies and billions of dollars lost for you know playing and partying, so we do need to level that playing ground and give everyone the equal opportunity to succeed because there is a huge majority of intelligence out there.
2: Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that, and I, and the way I look at it is that each of us has a sphere of influence that we can do to make things more equitable, and I did go through some. Some equity training and and part of it was uh, you were asked the question about you know what does your friendship group look like? you know what is the demographic, what is the age profile? and you know we generally i mean I'm guilty of this too. most of my friends are sort of people like me, right so we don't really have the ability we've got this unconscious bias in that we don't really have the ability to see things through the eyes of others, so you know i cannot i I see the data that says, for example. That, that you know, the percentage of females that are going into a particular profession, let's say architecture, and then the percentage of females that get to the board of the architectural companies. And, and there's a huge disparity, right? That the It's not that the pool's too small. It's that for some reason that, that females are not getting to the top of these companies. And I don't really understand why. And I feel that climate change is going to make it worse. Um, you know that that it, it feels to me that 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 you know that is happening, and because it affects people that you know already are disadvantaged disproportionately so. That's what the data seems to show. I mean, w- would you agree with that? And have you got some thoughts on what we should be doing to make it better?
1: Um, well, I mean, starting off with the corporate world and seeing um, people who make it to the executive level, I have. Um, A girlfriend friend of mine she's in the energy industry and she broke out on her own because um and i love this term she created she said i got tired of seeing mediocre men getting promoted above me and i said what do you mean by that she said well these guys either they were related to somebody in the executive level or they just they were uh, basically adopted by these guys to hang out and i saw that in my own career in the insurance industry i had certain people that never looked at me twice in the hallway and then this um kid right out of college joined really nice kid i mean smart and everything but the second he walked through the door every guy came out of their office and they wanted to know who this guy was and i was like you guys i've been here three years and you've never said a word to me but this 22 year old kid comes in and you want to know where he's from what's he doing what's he studying oh let's go get a let's go get a beer after work let's hang out and that was shocking to me um i was i was a little rocked back when that happened because i thought it's just the way it is i mean it's accepted with respect to climate change, now dry, you know, bringing that in, um, we are going to see more people in these disadvantaged communities that are, you know, more affected by pollution, flood, fire. They will have further disadvantages. They are going to have less access to certain resources, less access to education. I actually, one of my interviews, this woman um, started a company called Go Together, and she noticed absenteeism is skyrocketing post-COVID, and you know, people getting to school is difficult. Because the, you know parents both work. They cannot get to a bus. There is no bus available. How do they even get there? So she's organizing. She has a software as a service where people can either walk together, bike ride together, or carpool. And they can all figure it out. So um, to help that absenteeism go down, because uh, what was it? The socioeconomic impact is if you do not finish high school, you're losing out on about a million dollars over your lifespan of uh, of earnable income. Yeah. And so that that right there is a perfect example of, a problem and a solution.
2: It, and the, w- the way I think about it, and you tell me if you you agree with this or not. But the way I think about it is that um, the 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 more the wealthier you you are, which is the more disposable income that you have. The, the that is a buffer against uh, impact, right? So so if you have more disposable income, savings, you know, four hundred one k, whatever it might be, and insurance premiums skyrocket uh, i can absorb that you know its re- yep. it, it, its impact on me is relatively small relative to somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck they have no ability to absorb any impact of, of anything that's unforeseen and and so i see that as e- i'm just talking about economics but i think it also applies to to various other things you know healthcare uh, all oh, of these things that chat gpt says that that the the more you have the greater the ability to absorb a blow and um, whatever that blow might be and so how do we how do we create the ability that people who have are are able to absorb the impact more than the people who have not and i know that sounds like socialism and that's the problem i i did do a talk once i said sustainability is socialism and somebody booed me and uh <laughs> and but I sort of feel it is right because you you have to sort of you have to have the the impacts have to be uh, disproportionate that those who can afford it have to support those who can't otherwise we just create larger disparity and eventually society yeah. breaks down that's what history shows us and maybe that's a bit sounds a bit evangelical but I wanted to get the no, reaction
1: you're you're right um And yes, um, people do often say, you know, it's socialism, whatever, and fine, call it what you want, give whatever label you want. I'm kind of over labels myself. The thing is, our middle class is disappearing. And when we talk about, you know, the greatest generation ever is we had a large middle class. Um, In other countries, you don't have executives making billions of dollars while the lowest paid person is making $25,000. They actually have laws in certain countries where the executive can only make X times more than the lowest paid employee. That is something, you know, if you I'm all for making money, Lord knows I want to make more money. It's great. Capitalism. Awesome. To a point. How much I mean, one of the first lessons I learned um, in sustainability um, was what is your enough? When you can figure out what your personal enough is, uh, what matters to you, how much stuff you buy, what things you have, the adventures you go on. When you figure out what your enough is, it's rather freeing of wanting to get more stuff, more things. And um, going back to, you know, the equality issue, when someone says, you know, they have $300 billion, what are you honestly going to do with all that? I mean, great, awesome for you, but honestly, what are you going to do with all of it? You know, why not? Taylor Swift, great example. She gave all of um, the guys on her, I think it was the truck drivers on her tour in the U.S., she gave them huge bonuses. Yeah. Fantastic. She shared it. I think we need to see more of that.
2: I think that's your sphere of influence. I mean, you know, I, I I help people with environmental, social governance programs, and I say, you know, that what can you do? And you can influence things. Like you could, you know, if you're a company and you have people who come and clean your offices every night, you could insist that all of those cleaners are paid minimum wage. You can insist that they don't use products that, Damage yeah. the environment. You can, you can, you you have a sphere of influence. You could go on and on, that that enables you rather than just do it to yourself. You can do it to all of the things that you influence, like your customers, um, you know, your 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 pr- providers. You can influence them all in a positive way, and where each one of us can do that can do that too. So I think, you know, that is something that can be done. But I asked ChatGPT, what could you, what could we do to make a more uh, social, socially balanced uh, society, and this was the answer that ChatGPT came up with. How do you create a more equitable society? So first of all, acknowledge that there are inequities, and that's a yes. real shame that we still have people who, you know, who are saying, no, you know, it's 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 not happening. Um, your issue about, uh, you know, people who have and people who have not. Athena interviewed somebody last week who actually went and lived in the wild for seven years is that right I
0: yeah that. yeah in the middle and of I just New went Zealand. and actually
2: owned nothing when lived and forage for food in the wild so do you want to talk about that a little bit
0: yeah of course i mean she came from a middle class family in um somewhere in the netherlands anyway so she'd always been used to what we would just call a normal life you wake up you go to work you go home you sleep you wake up you go to work and she was just sick of it so she went traveling um the once and she kind of found that you know she just didn't want to go home and um so she ended up um meeting her partner and they literally just moved into the middle of nowhere um in the uh pretty much in the mountains in New Zealand and going back to absolute basics, sleeping under trees in a tent and stuff. It was it's incredible.
2: But, but what was amazing, I I thought listening to that interview was that she basically felt that stress in her life disappeared as she gave up all of these things that you own. And I think you're talking about people with 300 billion or something. The more you have, the the the, the more it tends to stress you out. Because you get into a very defensive, you know, you wanna everybody wants to keep what they've got and they start getting very defensive and protective. And and you see that with people who have bigger and bigger homes. They start to live in gated communities and then they get security on the gates, you know, and it's almost like keep the world out, you know, I've made it and nobody's taking this away from me. And and I think this you know that sort of how do you, how do you put that in the perspective of equity like how do you get somebody like that to say, "Well, perhaps you don't need to live in ten thousand square feet you too um perhaps you know there are people who actually are living on the streets in a tent, and how do we actually create a society where people care about everyone else?
0: And I also want to add to that as well, before you go into any detail, there's also the, um, the the number of people who aren't necessarily in tents, completely homeless, but the ones that are just trying to get by, who are stressed by debt, because they are trying to just keep up with the median price of everything. Um, so yes, you've got the stress of too much money you've got the stress of no money and then this in between where people are just trying to stay afloat and they are just stuck in this circular motion of debt that they probably will never get out of mortgages included
2: so i think i think it's you know we've we've come sort of towards the end of an hour but i think it's a good way to close wendy you know what should we be doing to create a more equitable society um so that everybody we actually do you know there is some social justice um and and I think maybe using the United States as a uh you know as a place uh model to do that, this country was founded upon you know taking advantage of opportunity and here's a massive opportunity to make society more equitable, so as a close to this podcast, what should we do?
1: Well, throw me a softball, why don't you. <laughs> <laughs> How is Wendy going to solve the world's problems? Let's start. Um, yeah. It's a tough one. So the first thing with um, land of opportunity, well, in, since the '70s, I mean, it was about Gordon Gecko and greed is good and everything's for the shareholders, not the stakeholders. We have come to such a point of you know social media and you know everything being about me and take pictures of me and I want more. We we we're broken. We got to fix that. We have to say, you know what, you can't when people even talk about climate change or sustainability, they get triggered. Let's just call it. Let's do the right thing. Let's do what's best for everybody. Yeah. Um, no one's better than anybody else. We're all raised that way. You actually you have to start actually believing it. Um, our homelessness issue is complicated. We do have people that everything bad happened. And I'm sorry, every resource we have should be help, should be used to help those people. Simultaneously, we have a mental health and drug issue that needs to be addressed through mental health services and drug services. For some reason, people don't like talking about that. It's it's not comfortable, it's not a comfortable conversation. So it's often ignored. We can't just keep throwing money at it and put building little tiny homes. We have to address the mental health issue, the drug issue. And then those people who really do need the help, all those services should be given to them because they're the ones that want to fight their way out. And Athena was talking about being t- in this kind of perpetual cycle of debt and trying to live paycheck to paycheck and just trying to get out. Those are people generally that were never taught to save. Um, On my own webcast, one of the first ones we did was my co-host Joel said, I was taught how to write a check, not how to deposit a check. And that hits hard because we're all taught, this is how you fill out your name, this is how you fill out who you're paying, how much. We're not taught, this is how you save money or you tell yourself, I don't need that today I will save up for it and get it. So we lived on credit. And when I was at university, there were all these tables of credit card companies and people just go down the line and fill out credit card applications and get 10 credit cards. I stayed away from them because they scared the hell out of me. I'll be honest. I saw that and I saw, you know, I'll be a bag lady by the time I'm 50 if I do that. So we need to start from education, kids, learn how to save, learn, learn that you don't need so much stuff. Stuff's not going to make you happy with the $300, 300 billionaires. It's, they're they're not happy. I know someone that owns a private security company and he's actually, you know, does provide security for some billionaires. And he's like, they're not happy people. They don't even like their own family. And that's the broken part. I mean, I love my family. I am not a billionaire. <laughs> don't I probably will never be. And that's OK. I'm totally cool with that because I know what matters to me and what's important to me. And I think it's those very simple values that we need to kind of get back to and start caring about everyone around us, not just ourselves. And going back to what Steve said, real quick, people who say there is no problem out there, there's no inequity out there, those are people living in their own personal bubble. They live in their neighborhoods, they live you know, only surrounding themselves with close friends and family. They don't look outside because one, they may not like it. They don't wanna see it, they don't wanna be upset. And I know people who simply say, I don't wanna be upset, I don't look at that. We have to start getting uncomfortable.
2: Yeah, I I actually feel my 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 response to that is that, and and we we interviewed somebody yesterday who talked exactly about this. Uh, somebody who lived in Los Angeles now lives in Holland, and and one of the reasons that she and her husband and her two children moved there was they felt in Los Angeles there was no sense of community, uh, and I would say that's my experience in the United States is that that there was more community in the UK than there is in the US here there is economic disparity, and so you know my friendship group and my community are all people who are similar. They live in similar value homes, they have similar value jobs they've, they've reached a certain socioeconomic position, and they operate within that band of people that look like like us and I'm guilty of that too. but how do we create more community? In the the US, because I actually don't know anywhere in the I don't know anywhere in the Bay Area where there's actually a a diverse community. I I just don't know anywhere. Uh, I can put them in pockets. If you name a place, I can say immediately what comes to mind is, you know, you say Richmond, California. I go high crime rate. I wouldn't go there at night. You know, is that true? I don't know, because I wouldn't go there at night. Um, but it's my perception of it. And so I've got all these preconceptions that may be right or wrong. But how do we create a blended community where people can see and have opportunity that is currently denied to them? And I think it's through community. It's like you, you most of us, certainly in my case, I, I became a professional engineer uh, because I got to meet some people who are professional engineers and I wanted to be like them. And it was simply, you know, it wasn't because I woke up one day saying, oh, why don't I do this? It's always somebody that you say, I could emulate them and they look successful. How do we create those role models in the disadvantaged communities? How do we create a more blended community in, across the U.S.? Um,
1: Starts with the education, you know, bring education. in the role models to the schools. Let, the, let these kids see that it's possible. So if you're dealing with a disadvantaged community or, or you know, a dangerous community, like you said, I, I don't know where Richmond is. I've never been. But how many of those kids get to see a successful person that looks like them, that came from their neighborhood, that they could relate to? Probably not that often because they're not inviting them. But you go to a white community where it's, you know, affluent, and they'll bring in guest speakers all the time and say, look at this person they look at what they, you know, look at this NASA astronaut. Great. We need to focus on everyone, not just one dynamic,
2: but... but there's a fundamental problem there, isn't there? The, the schools are funded by property taxes predominantly, and so the most expensive homes have more property tax, which give them better schools, which means that people who can afford the homes, go to, their kids go to the schools. And there's no diversity. There's no diversity in high schools, Apart from in the urban inner cities, and that's a whole different problem, but in suburbia, um, people are segregated economically based on the, the value of their home. So, you know, there are, there are no, you know, the school that my kids went to um, is is not a diverse school, not, not at all.
1: Yeah. I th- Well, let me clarify when I said bring people in. I'm not saying pay people to come. I'm saying sure. reach out to somebody and say, hey, we would love to have you. Come for like a career day, and I know people that are doing that in some, you know, in like South Central and in Watts. They're bringing in people just to talk to students, yeah. very casual, not formal, not on a stage, not sure. you know looking yeah. down on anybody, but just wandering the hallways, interacting, talking to kids. To create, what do you like to do? Yeah, but yeah. it's also engaging. Of what do you want to do? What what speaks to you? And actually talking to kids. And that's where we're seeing a lot of the breakdown happen is, you know, kids are just kind of going through schools if they're attending because absenteeism is so is so high right now. And they're just kind of floating through it. And then they graduate and they don't they don't know what to do with themselves because maybe they don't have a parent at home guiding them. That's that's, I think, what we need to work on and
2: do our best. But, but you know, I'm not sure that's anywhere near enough because my son played soccer for a college that was in near Richmond. That's why I picked on it as an example. And the kids were great kids on the soccer team. But um, when they went on an away trip on the bus, you know, he was chatting with them just about the rest of their lives. Some of these kids were 16, 17 years of age. They were doing security jobs at night to help bring in some money for their families. And he came back, he's like, he had no, you know, he just said, I don't know how lucky I am. He goes, "They, they, you know, I can't even imagine what they have to do compared to me. And so, it's not just enough, is it, showing a role model that comes into a career day at school. It's like, how do you get that those kids are they're under so much different pressure from yes. their families to contribute uh, at an earlier age, and that sort of mitigates against absenteeism. If you went and did a security job till two in the morning, you're not likely to turn up to school at eight thirty the next day, and it's not your fault, right? You're just tired, and you and, yeah. and the money comes first. And so I think we've got a whole, if, you know, the way that we fund education, there should be an obligation on the schools that have to give to the schools that have not. And, and you know, yeah, there should be some metrics and how that money gets used. But it seems yeah. like we've got a broken society that is segregated.
1: I agree. I, I don't have a, a quick and easy answer for that. I mean, my understanding with the school district is done by county, not by city. I think yeah,
2: somebody counts it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So usually like in LA County, that's pretty diverse. We're huge, yeah. but that's a pretty diverse County. So I would yeah. hope that those funds are distributed equitably amongst the neighborhoods. Um, but you're right. I mean, when you are dealing with, you know, communities or um, neighborhoods where kids have to work at night, I don't have a right answer for that. I mean, I have no idea yeah. how you fix that. You can't blame the parent. I'm sure the parent's probably doing everything they can. I know you
2: can't blame the parents. But, yeah. But, I mean, you know, not, not uniformly so. That's, that's stereotyping. But, um, anyway, I'm, I'm conscious of our time coming to a close. I, I mean, we've we've covered everything from reading your insurance policy to solving inequity in society. Uh, wide-ranging conversation. has been really great to hear your opinions, I- honestly. Uh, I share oh, many you. of them and uh uh it's been it's been super good to talk to you.